Mark chapter 5 is, uh, we've come to the end. We made it through another chapter. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 39, says this, And when he, Jesus, had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and for what we see in it and how we can apply it to our lives. And to see this amazingly wonderful moment in history where you entered someone's life and transformed it completely. And so, Father, I am confident and prayerfully ask that you do that even now by your spirit. Um, The joy of seeing Jackie come and be a part of this fellowship as so many others have had already. The movement that you do by the spirit and what you're doing in us and through us here as a body of believers in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk of um, what it means to have a high view of God, uh, what that looks like or what that means, uh, and in part one of those being uh, one of the five foundational elements of this church body, what we, what we want you and I to understand, to live, to love out um, with our life, is it is to have a high view of God, who He is, that followed by the absolute authority of the Word of God given by him, revealed to him to his people, which leads us to sound teaching or sound doctrine, and that translates into your life, my life, to be lived out in holiness, and then the spiritual authority that the elders have over a church body to orchestrate all of that. It's so far beyond our comprehension sometimes about what that is, a high view of God. One of those things that's like that to me is if you consider the universe... Have you ever just gone out, what's beautiful about living in the country is that um, you can just go out on a clear night and this goes on forever. And to contemplate how it all got there and to really ponder the big questions of life, and to me the universe is like that. It's an uncountable number of galaxies, not just stars, but galaxies themselves. It's, it's just so massive to comprehend and even the term massive seems very small in comparison to what God has done and what's going around. The Andromeda galaxy is our closest neighbor, and it, by the way, is just crushing it in, I think it's a million miles an hour on course to, you know, to lock up with us at some point, sometime in history, I don't know when. But it's just amazing to consider all of those things, all the eternal mysteries when you think about that, that you and I will never see. I mean, I love the Hubble telescope. I love, you know, some of those pictures you get or, or, you know, when you go in the ocean and all those things that we're just now you know, able to do and understand or at least get this glimpse of what those things were like. And for thousands of years, they're just there, uncomprehended by man. My point is, this should give us a long pause to consider and to know that you are not the center of the universe, not the center of life, that there is one behind such a thing, that being the triune God of Scripture as He's revealed Himself to us. And what we see in our text this morning is that life and death are in his hand. That life and death are also such a thing, a mystery. 
we don't have any control over it. When you enter this life, when you come into it, nor when death comes or what manner it will come, we just know that it comes. Life is a terminal disease, if you will, and it ends in our death. And no matter when that comes, God is justified in using death as a tool, if you will, of His judgment for your sin and mine, young and old alike. However, in our world, if you don't have a high view of God, you tend to replace that with something else. You replace it with you, in essence, a high view of man. And in our text, Jesus is confronting that. What you see here is a physical example of a spiritual truth that I believe he wants us to come to understand. And it comes in a question or a, 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 a dad knowing his daughter is sick. And when you're in those moments, um, sorry, too many memories. When you're in that moment, especially in my case when my daughter was born and you're not sure and they tell you all these horrible things that may happen and they try to prepare you of what's potentially going to happen, you're at the end of yourself. There's nothing, you're sitting there as a dad and as a mom not wanting this. You didn't ask for this, you didn't ask for any of this, but all of a sudden it's right in your life. And then there's nothing you can do. And you get to the end and you look for anything. You'll You'll even look at the irrational because you're looking for something or someone to do something that you can't do. And Jarius was like this with his 12-year-old daughter because it's out of sorts. We understand death. We understand the order of things, but this is out of order, and it makes it extremely difficult. And if you don't have a high view of God but replace that with your own self like most of the world does, what does that lead to? If God is not high and exalted and lifted up, then you take him out. It's not that something doesn't just uh, stay in a vacuum. Something gets replaced because we're created in his image. And so we are bent on worshiping. And what's left is just this naturalistic worldview, if you will, that everything is physical. What does that lead to? Well, I believe it leads to the meaninglessness of life. Um, Hence, what... If you've read anything of Frederick Nietzsche, um, which I'm sure he would love and did and does, life is meaningless. It's the reduction of life to meaninglessness, <laughs> nihilism, emptiness, no purpose, no meaning, was his thesis. And that's the fundamental battle you see in our text this morning. It's the fundamental battle between God in the center of the universe, controlling it all, everything that comes and goes in it, or man the center of the world. And how you respond, not only in life, but also in death. And that battle shows up all through Scripture. It shows up here back in verse 36. If you look, I'll back up to 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came the ruler's house, someone who said, Your daughter is dead. And in their mind, when the man's the center of that, that's it. There's nothing left. There's no hope for anything else. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, meaning Jairus, don't fear, only believe. So immediately there is this clash, and Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over life and death. See, the system of this world, of this fallen nature in which you and I live in, is the system of man, and it's meant to have a high view of who he is. That man is the center of the universe, or if you want to use man as God, 
or those in power are God, however you would like to refer to that. And what you see in the application of that is just all sorts of chaos and havoc. You're seeing that in Ukraine right now. It's been going on for time immemorial, things of such natures. And when you have the resources, the unlimited financial resources, when you have an unlimited military resource at your disposal or unlimited political power, what does that do with a man-centered view of life? Death means nothing at that point because life means nothing. It's power or nothing else. That's why things like this can happen. You're not concerned about anybody in the Ukraine or what's going on in this particular case that we've been wrestling with this week. There's no concern about kids dying and, and any of that with military action because it means nothing to a man-centered view. And aside from the last two years that we've gone through here in such a way as well, it leads to a very small group of people that have no limits. That's a man-centered view of life and death. I came across a presentation, so this is a, from 2018, just to give you an example of what this looks like. Um, it was shocking, I don't know why it would have, but it, it just kind of set me off a little bit because I was unprepared for, and I just got a few excerpts I'd like to share with you. I don't know the gentleman's nationality, um, so it was kind of, uh, I had to work through it a little bit, but these are people in high places with a lots of influence around the world at an economic summit, he says this, quote, We probably are one of the last generations of Homo sapiens because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies, brains, and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. He goes on to say that, We've reached a point, not that we can just hack into computers, that we can hack humans and other organisms. What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> he says the elites may gain power to re-engineer the future of life itself. And my favorite, science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution with intelligent design, I had to, at that point, because that was at the end, I kind of had to laugh, because do you not, are you missing the irony to what you just said? <laughs> he goes on to say, this is the qualifier, not intelligent of some God beyond the clouds, but our intelligent design. Okay, so aside from you just, I need you to focus real quick, okay? Some of you just drifted off into conspiracy land. Stop it! <laughs> Okay, come on back. Aside from the claim that there is no God beyond the clouds and replacing that idea with man, which, again, makes zero sense. When man is the center of your theology, when man is the center of life and death, what could possibly be one of those goals behind that? I believe what they're saying is we want to eliminate death is what I believe they're saying. Why? Because you recognize that we are finite, that we, are, we don't last. It has been designed in you to be an eternal being, created in God's image. That's a piece of that. 
And so we'll do whatever we can to fight through it, to eliminate the God that we want to suppress and not want to know and not understand, to come up with some other solution. And it always seems to go bad. Man's fearful, futile, and pointless attempt to overcome death, apart from the very one who just gives it to you, will likely lead to more horrendous human atrocities that we're seeing and continue throughout human history, where widows, orphans, the poor, the masses are just seen as commodities for a few. They are expendable. And so from our scripture this morning and what Jesus is doing, this is the first time that he does this type of miracle where he restores someone from life to death. In this physical example of the spiritual truth, I want to just point just a couple things out. He's going to Jairus' house, and so because he's a ruler, that implies that he was a man of means, a family of wealth. And so when someone would die, they would hire mourners. They would make this big parade and big atmosphere about how much this person meant to them, so they would hire professional mourners to mourn. You get this because when Jesus says, this child is not dead but sleeping, which is a hint to where we get to, they laughed. How do you go from mourning to laughter quite like that? That's the inference here, that they're professional mourners. In other words, they don't believe. And this is this physical example of the spiritual truth of what's taking place here and what happens to those who believe and what happens to unbelief. What happens to those that don't believe in the one who gives life and has the power of life and death? What does he say? Verse 40. And they laughed, but he put them all outside. They went from inside the house to outside the house. That is judgment, bottom line, is what the reference is. It is judgment on unbelief. But he brings in the father, the mother, and the three disciples he took with him. You believe and you're brought into the house, unbelief, you're cast out. That's what happens as we deal with death today. What takes place when you die? Jesus gives a parable. We get this little window um, and these little vignettes throughout Scripture. If you remember the parable of the ten of virgins with oil, ten of them come together. There's this big celebration. They're anticipating the bride. They would wait for the bridegroom to come and wait for the party to start. So, Five of them have oil in their lamps, and they bring extra. Why? Because they're cognizant of the fact that they don't know how long it's going to take. could take a day. could take a week. The bridegroom has to prepare everything for the bride to come home, to bring them home with them. So that would take maybe weeks, months, years even. And the other five just brought enough for a short amount of time. Well, they fall asleep, Right? The ladies, the virgins with the, with the oil in their lamps, that just that's all they have, it goes out. And then all of a sudden, it all breaks loose. The sound comes out. Everybody's cheering. The, the party's starting. And they look and go, hey, we're out. And they go to the people, the, the other five that have some, hey, let us borrow from you. They're like, well, if we do that, then we're going to run out. So no. <laughs> a whole other sermon right there. <laughs> anyway, go buy your own. So while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. The party started. The door gets shut. When you get to Luke 13, 25, he says this. When the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, he will answer, I don't know you. 
Depart from me in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, what happens when you die is either you will be invited into the house or you will be rejected and be on the outside of the house. It's a spiritual example of a physical truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, that's Mark's whole thesis at the very beginning in Mark 1.1, holds life and death in His hands. Life for those who believe, death for those who don't. And as a follower of Christ, like Abraham in Hebrews, Abraham, the father of faith, the, the, the one that God came to make the first promise, he understood that this, this is not home for you and for me, for believers. We are looking for a city built without hands. That's what he was looking for from Hebrews 11. My point, one of them this morning is, we forget that, I believe, as Christian people. And the time you and I are living in, that's our issue. We forget. We lose sight of the city. We get so consumed with everything that's here. All the wonders and the glories that await, we forget. We work so very hard. And not that that's a bad thing, it's just a priority thing. But we work hard and put much effort in to make this life as comfortable as possible. To have everything we know and do to avoid any harshness, to avoid all the, all the, the, the frailties of life, to sacrifice for all the virtues that make families wonderful and beautiful, or nations wonderful and beautiful and worth fighting for. And we just go, oh, just, I just want to be comfortable. And in the process, because we lose track of our focus, death and the thought of that creates more fear, more anxiety, and keeps us looking at earthly temporary treasures. We lose sight of keeping our minds on things above, not on things of the earth, as when Paul writes to the Colossian church in chapter 3. And I think therein lies the other issue, too, to take that to an extreme. Maybe you've heard at some point, well, if I do that, then my head's in the clouds and I'm no earthly good. Have you heard that before or something similar to that? If all you're thinking about is heaven and you're ignoring everything that takes place where we're actually living, where people are hurting, where suffering's going on, then, then you're just, what good are you? Well, I believe if that's the case, we've missed the point, and that's possible. But the point is to focus on heavenly things where our King is, the glories of where Christ is, to know what's there, what's waiting for us, so that those heavenly things are reflected through you, through our families, through this church, so the rest of the world can actually see it. Not just to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for Christ to come back or just, I can't wait, just beam me up. We've missed the point if that's the case. We also miss the point when we're told, hey, just come to Jesus because he's going he's gonna to relieve some sort of worry or anxiety or you're going to be fulfilled in some way. He's going to do something for you in, in, in that way. In other words, to find happiness and fulfillment in those things of this earth that you won't be alone anymore. You're going to have a better life. And we treat Jesus as some kind of cosmic vending machine, which he kind of saw when the woman came to her, to Jesus. Which is why all the crowds are gathering at this point in his ministry. Thousands of people, because he's doing these amazing miracles. Listen, there is no promise to you that when you are come to Christ and saved by faith, 
that you will never have issues in your life. In fact, what I appreciate when Jesus mentions this in John, that through much tribulation will you inherit the kingdom of God, meaning this life is hard, isn't it? And there's a reason why it's hard, but in Christ we can overcome that. See, the issue is to believe that Jesus is the Christ to escape judgment of death and hell through Him because without Him, you're already condemned already. We covered that before. The issue is to enter into His home, into His house, to be invited in through Him, to receive His riches and glory and the magnitude of what that is. And for us in this place to recognize that we have barely really any capacity. The only capacity we have is to understand Scripture. So when you come to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it been imagined in your heart. There's no contemplation in your mind that you can understand what God has prepared, the glorious nature of what is awaiting for you, for those who love Him. And that being every follower of Christ, therefore, should long for, strive for, desire for those things. But the only way to get there is to die. Well, or to be alive when Christ returns. But that's a really small minority, don't you think? That's a, that's a moment in time in history for a very small group of people. Why do you think God says he can delight in the death of his saints? seems like a strange thing to say, don't you think? But there's delight because he's the giver of life. When you're on his side of the equation, it's not a, it's not a bad thing at all. See, faith in Jesus Christ justifies you from the penalty of sin, death, and hell. You are now, at this moment, sanctified in which you are now living as the Holy Spirit delivers you from the things of this world, from the power over sin, to overcome it, to live in victory. So you can have this mindset of having the mind of Christ, to understand heavenly things. For the sole reason, no matter what you and I experience in this life, so everybody where you live, work, and play can see the glory of God through you, even in your suffering. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And in Adam, we all bear that mark. So death, therefore, is the divine act of a fair wage that you are owed. And so we all die physically. That's part of it. So what happens when you die? Well, you and I have lived long enough to to know what happens to our physicalness. That's why Jesus said, she's not dead, she's sleeping. This physical body stays here. It returns to where it came from. It decays to the earth. It is mortal. From dust you were created, right? To dust you will turn ashes to ashes. Thus all, all those things you may hear at a, at a funeral. But Jesus likens that part here to sleep, which I appreciate. But what happens to the soul? What happens to your spirit? See, God creates life. It's not just this. When God's the center of your theology... It's not just physical. There's far more grander things than the physicality of who we are and what we see. When He creates, it lasts for eternity. Once that's created, it lasts. 
It lasts for all eternity. There's no such thing as ceasing to exist when you die. Listen, even Satan, have you considered this? Create an angel, right? Fallen, we get again very small understanding of what took place back then and, and, and throughout eternity. But he just doesn't not exist. He's an angelic, heavenly being at the time, now condemned for all eternity. He just does not, not exist. Nor do those that followed him. They are consigned eternally to the lake of fire. That's their judgment. And the unbelieving are also consigned there as well. The moment your life leaves this body, in other words, your soul consciously enters an eternal place and the condition doesn't change. Luke 16 gives us a brief picture and I have to just warn us all. When, when you look at Scripture it's, and there's not a lot of Scripture there, you get this picture but I always have to caution myself to not drive too hard or come to these conclusions because there's not a lot there. Does that make sense? You can take one verse and just run off and, some, and make some theology out of it, but if that's all you have, that's, it's, it's kind of, just be very careful is what I'm getting at. Luke 16, Jesus gives us a small window with the rich man and Lazarus. He's relating this story. They both physically die. Why? Because they're in Adam. They're sin. We, we get that part. Lazarus, in the story, which we miss a lot of times, but his name means God is my helper. He is carried away to be with Abraham, Jesus is he's described. He's at Abraham's side. He dies, they both die. Lazarus, God's my helper. What does that imply, by the way? That he's saved. God's helping him. He's redeeming him. He's saving him. And we get that because of where he ends up. He's next to Abraham, the father of our faith. There is comfort with Abraham, but the rich man, and please notice in that parable, he has no name, there's no one standing with him where he's at, he is all alone. He's nameless, which again is the irony in Jesus' story is a rich man would not have been nameless. That's completely flipped around is the point. While there, apparently, your soul has this same recognizable feature because he sees Abraham and Lazarus and says, hey, and there's this conversation going on. Again, the irony in that story is the rich man is still trying to dictate to this poor that was outside his door, tell him to go get me some water. I mean, it's basically, he hasn't lost that mentality. He still thinks he's Lord of the manor. You know, telling his servants to go here, then tell Lazarus to go get some water because it's burning hot here. <laughs> There's comfort with Abraham, but anguish for those who are separated. There is comfort when you're in the house, but when you're outside the house, there's no comfort at all. What's going on, and particularly in this story, but in our Mark text, Proverbs 11 says this, 11.4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And that's not your righteousness, by the way. That's Christ's righteousness. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes with him. Can't take it with you. Doesn't mean anything when you get there. 
The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. That's the picture of this parable that Jesus is telling. That's the picture of the story. The Jewish context was, hey, the rich got, have God's favor. They have everything. Man, God is blessing them. They're like this with God. I mean, they're, and then this, the poor, um, he's done something wrong because he is dirt poor, and all he, he, all he gets is the dog licking all the sores that are all... So something's wrong. So he deserves hell. He deserves, and Jesus flips that whole thing around. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doings, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. How? Why? Not only because in his, in his faith and the righteousness that comes through Christ, but in his death, in Christ's death. Proverbs 22.3, you may know this one or not. The prudent sees danger and hides himself from it, but the simple go on and suffer. Revelation 21 talks about the second death. There is a physical death for the wicked, but the unbelieving get moved to the outside of the house. Judgment, death, and hell, torment. Matthew 25 is a good picture. Second Thessalonians 1 says, The wicked, they, the wicked, will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. All alone, nameless. You get the picture. By doing this miracle in this moment in time in history, Jesus is demonstrating that He and He alone has the power of life and death. Which should completely change your understanding of what death is. For the Christian, death and our understanding of it as we see it on this side of eternity and what we view is just a door to eternal life with Christ. It's a promotion, in other words. How do you see it? I can remember growing up, you know, because again, I grew up in a church and all of that and, and all, everything that comes with that you know, as far as thinking and that kind of thing. And I can remember, you know, junior high, high school, I'm like, well, one, I don't want to die, and two, I hope he doesn't come back because I want to do life, <laughs> right? I want to do things in my immaturity and lack of understanding. I don't want to do that yet. As if I would miss out on something here. <laughs> that was my immaturity. Paul's understanding of death was unique too. He understood this, to live for Christ, but to die is gain, right? I would rather depart, die, and be with the Lord, which is better for me, he says, but if that's not the case, I'll hang around and, and be okay with you. <laughs> I love his priorities, because it's helped me reorient mine. I would rather depart, which is better for me, but I'll stay here because it's better for you. That was, and you have to remember where Paul was when he wrote that. He's in prison. He's, he's chained. He's got Roman guards. And again, prison was not a very pleasurable thing back. Not that it is now, but in comparison, it's a hole. You're chained. Soldiers, the whole deal. You may or may not get food. You may or may not get you know, to use the bathroom or whatever. It's not a, not a fun place. It's usually dark. It's usually wet. And he ordered his life in this belief about death this way. 
What was that? Well, first of all, he didn't necessarily want to die. When you read what he wrote, he's, so his priorities are this. I would rather hang around and have Jesus come. I want to see that. He's thinking, in other words, that Jesus is going to return in his lifetime. But if that's not the case, I would rather die because I want to be with Jesus. But if I can't do that, I'll hang out here as long as I can for the sake of the churches. Do you see an order? Do you see his priorities? His best option was wanting Jesus to return. His better option was to die in the physical sense, to be with the Lord. His good option, because I don't want to say his least favorite option, but I just did, was hanging out with his church. Because he understood his ministry, right? There's more work to do. Only reason I want to stay is to do that. This is his priority. I believe that's a model for you and I to have a God-centered theology, to have a high view of God, to think on heavenly things, to have the mind of Christ, to desire to be with Him, not to live in fear of death and what happens and therefore be manipulated by all the world and what it can do, what it can't do, but to know that when you die as a Christian, it's more of a promotion than anything else that you'll ever experience. And I've shared this in funerals and that kind of thing, and, it, and I believe this to the bottom of my heart, but in that very moment when I die, I will be, and you will be, more alive than you are at this very moment. You will understand to be in the presence of the Lord, the glories of that, what that means, what that looks like, everything you think you're going to miss out here is meaningless to know the glory of God. So what happens when you die? Well, there's a separation of body and soul, number one. This body stays, it decays. Paul uses the description of a tent. The soul of the believer is brought inside with the Lord. The unbeliever is alone, hopeless, outside of the house, so to speak, torment, like Jesus is using that example here. What did Jesus say, by the way, on the cross? Father, into your hands what? I commit and commend my spirit. Stephen said the same thing when he's being unjustly brutalized with a bunch of rocks because he preached the gospel and they were so vehemently opposed to that because they didn't want God at the center of their theology that they stoned him. What did he say? Amazing what's happening. That is not my attitude because I would, you know, if it were possible, not that it would, but I would want to pick up one of those rocks and chuck it right back, right? But what does he say? Jesus received my what? Spirit. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What happens when you die? That means there's no holding place. There's no waiting around. There's no purgatory to pay for your sins and then to try to get to a better place. The soul exits outside the body. It is appointed once to die. And then judgment, Hebrews 9 says, Revelation 6 gives us another picture of all the souls that have lost their lives, they've been martyred for the word of Christ, they're under the altar, they're crying out, to them, how long will we have to wait? You know, they want their glorified body, how long will we have to do this? And God's, you know, Revelations is, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, why? What's the sole purpose of that? Because where I'm going, I want you to come too. I want you to be there. So heaven at this present moment in time in history that you and I are living, is filled with the spirits who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. 
those who have committed or believed in him. They repented of their sins. They called out to, 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 to Jesus to save them. They've confessed their sins before him. They repented in, his, in, in, in their, their sins. They've been baptized in his name. They've lived their lives for however long he gave them time to live it in his holiness and his righteousness. And they've experienced only one death from Adam until this very moment in time in history. And that's a long time, don't you think? I remember kind of having a discussion with some students years ago. Um, like, aren't they bored now? <laughs> I mean, in, that's a long time for Adam to be, or, Kate, or Abel, and, and all, you know, Abraham. That's a long time to be in heaven, isn't it? Well, on our side of the equation it is, but you're not thinking of their side. Because there's no time there. You're outside of time, which... You know, we can use the word eternity, and I can kind of get that, but I don't get that. You know what I mean? I can try to rationalize it in my head to go, it's eternity. Oh, it's a long time. Well, that's like standing at a Cedar Point ride. That's a long time waiting for 40 seconds and some sitting in there for two hours. <laughs> They're outside of time. It means nothing to them. It would be like never having to wait for anything. See, the power of life and death are in the hands of Jesus, and he demonstrated it on this particular day with this particular family, just like he did the demon-possessed man to demonstrate the goodness and graciousness and mercy of God in a physical example. In this case, we'll get into that later. He says, don't tell anybody. He tells the demon-possessed man, we say, hey, go, you can't come with me, but go tell everybody over here. But he tells them, don't tell anybody. There's a reason for that, but I'm sure they told everybody, <laughs> right? They were having a funeral. People saw, the, you know, we, we have funerals, we come, we go, we visit, and, and I saw you, and then she goes to school on Monday, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Do you want to know what's missing in Scripture, too, in all of these places? And again, not very few places in Scripture where Jesus raises people from the dead. What's missing? Have you ever considered this? If I'm going to school with her, what's my first question as soon as I kind of get through past, oh, you're here, what are you going to ask her? What was it like? I got to know. <laughs> Can't tell you. Why? Well, it's like sleeping, Jesus says. Same thing with Lazarus. Lazarus is an adult. You don't hear anything about that. Nothing from Scripture. The power of life and death are in his hands. No doubt this family was blessed. There is coming a day when those spirits waiting for their glorified bodies will be reunited. That's what they're waiting for. A body glorifying God in heaven or a body fitted and glorified for hell. In either case, time doesn't exist. In either case, both will glorify God in His holiness, justice, mercy, and grace. Colossians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 describes that. You are perishable 
And Paul uses this example of your body is like a seed being planted in the ground and it will be raised imperishable. It's not the same body that you and I have. And we get this picture because God's, Jesus' glorified body, after he's resurrected, where does he go? He goes to the beach. He, look at the scars. Thomas, look at this. Uh, he's eating with them. So there's this physicality that you and I kind of understand, but it's different in some way when we have our glorified body. That's our hope in Christ. Revelations 20, let me close with this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who's seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. That'd be a sight to see, wouldn't it? No place was found for them. I'll just keep reading, sorry. (laughs) I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared for a bride adorned for her husband. That's what Abraham saw so many years ago. That was his understanding to have a mind that was expressively looking on heavenly things. Yes, we have to be about our lives and doing that, but if this is what you're focused on, our point is we're missing what's taking place. We get so consumed with everything here that death becomes fearful to us. As a Christian, there is no need to fear. Now, I've shared this with you before, all through the COVID stuff, I can't live in fear. I can't do it. What I'm afraid of is the process of dying. Does that make sense? I'm not afraid of dying. I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly, I know all. He just, he showed it to us. But what I'm a little concerned about is the in-between part, right? So, (laughs) my desire, if I could share it in that way, is if I have to die, I just want to preach one sermon, go sit down, and just drop over. <laughs> and you'll know he's good. And then the next thing, because my wife will be really upset, we've had these conversations, I have, she has to go first, <laughs> is I just want to party. That's, I understand the process, and I'm not making light if you've lost loved ones, because it's, it's beyond hard. And it's a reminder of how difficult death is because it just smacks us in the face of our sin nature and what takes place and what's, what's, what that means. And it's the hardest thing that you have to do, and especially here because he's talking about a 12-year daughter. It's, in, it's out of order. We, at least we kind of understand it. Like my parents are 90, so we get this process. Well, they've had a good life, and, and there's not much life left. We understand that process. But this is completely out of bounds. And death comes in and it crushes us. And if you have a man-centered theology, there's no hope. There's nothing left. 
Jesus Christ purposely comes and demonstrates a physical truth of a spiritual reality of him saving you. So you either believe that Jesus holds life and death in his hands and therefore have a high view of who God is, and if that's you as a Christian, no matter what happens in this life, whatever that is for you, it'll be the worst you'll ever have to experience. But if you don't, and you have a high view of man, you'll try to tell yourself that this is it, and when I die, that's it, there is nothing else. And that takes more faith, honestly, than what I have. Come to the one who holds life and death in his hand. Repent. Save yourself from the second death. Hear and obey the voice of Jesus to come into the home. Don't be left outside. Jesus, thank you for the day, the opportunity to share this picture and this little window of what happens when we die, your power in it and over it. Father, I pray as we see Paul's writing to all the churches, the hope and the assurance and the confidence that we can have knowing that is our end in this life, but knowing the work that Jesus did to believe who he is, the son of the living God, as Mark has been sharing with us, to believe and know that he came to take our sin upon him at the cross to know and understand that even that couldn't keep him in the grave. And therefore, we now have hope because of your righteousness. There is no longer the hopelessness of just continuing on in life and walking into death randomly, but that you've called the people to yourself. God, I pray if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, you call them to yourself to come inside the house where it's safe, where they will be redeemed, where they will be taken in, washed and clothed, where sin is no more. Father, thank you for this notion that we can face not only life, but death. And to know that when that day comes for each of us, through Christ, we will be more alive that day than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.